Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Perfect. Hey everyone, Donovan Brown. I'm a senior DevOps program manager here at Microsoft. I'm responsible for the DevOps vision on top of Team Foundation Server and Visual Studio Team Services. I am so glad to have with me my buddy Aaron, and we're going to talk about the importance of planning inside of a DevOps pipeline. So Aaron, why don't you introduce yourself? Thanks, Donovan. Yeah, my name is Aaron Bjork. I'm a group program manager here at Microsoft. I look after all of our investments in the Visual Studio Team Services and Team Foundation Server products related to Agile project management, work item tracking, reporting, and dashboards. Fantastic, right? So you're the right guy to talk to about this. I'm the right guy. All right, so there's a couple things I kind of want to do before I get to the questions that came through Twitter. Okay. Uh, we tell the story a lot about how we've taken this exact same transition that all of our customers are taking, right? Visual yeah. Studio Team Services and TFS went from three years to where we're deploying it every three weeks, right? Yeah. That's an astonishing transformation that we've gone through. Yeah. And we share that a lot with our customers. And I was a certified Scrum Master before joining Microsoft. For seven years, I went around and helped people do that. And a lot of times, I get asked after I tell that story, so, so why three weeks? Yeah. Right, so why three weeks? That's a question I actually can't answer very well because I wasn't here when three weeks was decided. I know how when I'm mentoring a team, how we choose our sprint length. Yeah. It's not always three weeks, right? It, it depends on a lot of different circumstances and, and exercises that we go through. So I'm curious, what exercises did we go through here at Microsoft to reach three weeks, and what other sprint links were chosen and, and, or tried at least? Sure, so the answer might feel a little underwhelming, but, uh, but I'll <laughs> go for it. Uh, we tried four weeks okay. and it felt too long. We tried two weeks and it felt too short. And it's what I call the Goldilocks principle. Yep. Three weeks felt just Perfect. right. Perfect. And so I think as we you know, experimented with different lengths, four weeks felt like something that was, um, just for teams, it felt like a little bit of a marathon, and it felt like this thing that we could plan really well for about two and a half weeks, and beyond that was like, yeah, yeah, and we'll do whatever we want in the fourth week. Uh, two weeks kind of felt high ceremony, and it just felt like as soon as we got through it, we were sort of rinse, repeat, starting again, and it got tiresome. And um, yeah, oddly enough, three weeks felt right. Gotcha. Um, I've really, I've loved the three-week cadence. Um, I think it uh, for us and what we're doing, it feels right. I wouldn't say it's perfect for every team. But I, I also love that it's not four weeks because I see a lot of teams trying four weeks and trying to make that a month-long sprint. Oh, yeah. It's a, and it just it's doesn't work. work. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, like months are not, months don't start on day one and, and end on day 28. Look, some of them are 31 days exactly. and they start on Tuesdays and end on Sundays. And there's this, I think there's this natural, almost human nature desire to say, oh, four weeks, it's a month-long sprint. And it just doesn't work. work. That way. So, <laughs> so, I've been through all yeah. those learning. That's why I'm laughing because I've been there, right? Yeah. I've been that guy trying to make that work and it just does not work. So, yeah. uh, But I've also had the same thing where we look at every scenario. Uh, I had to do four weeks once and I'm, I'm a little bit on four weeks. Yeah. It seems like a little long, right? Yeah. But we were working with physicians. Our product owner was a actual practicing yeah. physician. Trying to get him to come any more often than once a month to come see what we were doing yeah. was an impossibility because yeah. those were billing hours he was giving up to come yeah. visit us. So we basically we could not do them any faster than four weeks. And then I've had some teams who were porting applications from one language to another, and we ran one-week sprints, because yeah. the whole project might only be three weeks long, and you yeah. don't want one sprint, and then they only get to see it once before they give you feedback. So I just find it that it, there's no one answer yeah. for how long your sprint length should be, but I was just curious how we came to ours. Yeah, that's, that's how we landed on ours. And I think one of the things that we've learned from that is that we, well, we snapped to this three-week cadence sort of across the division, right. and, it, and it really gives us this common uh, kind of rhythm and cadence where we can talk. You know, we can talk to teams and say, hey, um, it's not a date that we talk about. We say, hey, Sprint 104 is the yeah. last responsible sprint. And that means the same thing to every, everybody. We do, however, 
allow teams to have a lot of kind of freedom within that sprint. So there are some things that we want all teams to do the same, but I know teams that treat a three-week sprint as sort of uh, three one-week sprints, okay. and, and they kind of check in and report out at the three-week interval. I know teams that have uh, the three-week cadence, and while we deploy at the end of every three weeks, they treat their, their kind of process throughout that more of sort of a lean Kanban style where they're managing their work based on flow and limits instead of a plan that they've established sure. on day one. So I think one of the things that we've learned, especially as we've scaled, is that the consistent cadence has a lot of value. It gives us a tremendous amount of alignment that is just important. But there still needs to be a fair amount of room for autonomy within teams to kind of apply the art of Agile as needed within their environment. And, and we've got so many teams and they're not all the same. I right. mean, the, the, the language teams are so much different than the teams building our boards and planning tools and, sure. and, and repos and things like and that. And not only are they different, they're in different places, in different time zones. In different yeah. Areas. That has a huge effect with the teams in Hyderabad and the teams in North Carolina and the teams here in Redmond. It's just yeah. it's amazing how we are the scrum of scrums, right? We are that bigger, yeah. doing it from the enterprise level. It's, it's yeah, really yeah, we are, we are, and uh, and it's working so far. You know, we're, I think we're finding success with it. Um, it. It's fun. Our teams are energized. Um, so yeah. So and you're obviously using your planning tools. And yeah. You're doing these type of plannings too. So, how often are you? listening to what the customers are saying and saying, okay, we got to go do that even though that's something that we don't do? Yeah. Or are you using more of your personal experience more to drive some of that, uh, those features that end up in our product? I think it's both. I mean, I think um, we value the experience we get from, you know, dogfooding the tools sure. and using the tools. There's no doubt. I mean, if it's not good enough for us, wh why should expect that it's good enough for anybody else? But I also, I recognize that the way we work and, and the approach that we take is not everybody's approach. And so I think the listening to customers sort of uh, piece of the question, you know, the answer might sound cliche, but I think it's constant. Like, we're constantly listening to customers. And it's not that we, you know, talk to a customer and then change our mind every three weeks, you know, every sprint about what we're going to do. We don't. We still have plans and we still follow them. But we use that constant customer interaction and customer feedback to sort of validate, hey, I was thinking about doing this for the next three sprints. And well, I'm hearing something completely different from, from customers I'm talking to or a competitor is doing something sure. new. And now I've got an opportunity to adjust that. Uh, we would never adjust at mid-sprint or only at you know, sort of last resort. But those sprint boundaries are appropriate times to do that. Exactly. So you mentioned some other things that are interesting too is that a lot of people think that Agile means I don't have to plan anymore, I don't have to document anymore, yeah. I just run and when I'm done, I get to say I'm done. Yeah. But you, you clearly said what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks or three, yeah. three sprints. And So what are yeah. the different cadences of which you plan? Okay, so I'll try to explain this without sort of pictures, but I think, um, and, and we're kind of right in the middle of one of those um, sort of planning boundaries, so it's a good time to address it. But um, we always have an 18-month vision for where we're going. So okay. I, I cast a vision for where I want to be 18 months from now in the work item space. And we'll build some storyboards and, and you know, kind of align the team on that and get directional alignment with our leadership team. But if I achieve maybe 60% of that vision 18 months from now, I will think, hey, we've been successful. Gotcha. It's not a kind of perfect plan. It's, it's a strategy. It's kind of guardrails to keep us going in the right direction. Then what we do is we just take the 12-month year we cut it in half into okay. two six-month seasons. Okay. So January through June represents uh, spring. That's where we are now. And then July through the end of the year represents what we fall. call fall. Right. Yeah, and the summer in Seattle lands right on that boundary. That's <laughs> what we say. That's the running joke. 
But what we do is every six months, we just recast that 18 month vision okay. and, um, and, and make a kind of more concrete plan for the next six months. So the exercise we're going through right now is we've recasted our 18 month vision and we're setting a plan for the next six months. What do I want to achieve by the end of the year across the teams that I'm, um, that I'm looking after? And you know, that plan is something that I, I kind of think of as if I achieved 80% of it, I would feel good. Okay. And then what we do is as we work through that six month season, we uh, sort of recast a rolling three sprint plan out in front of us. So a great example of is tomorrow is uh, Wednesday of the middle of sprint 102. Okay, it's Wednesday. And I have a meeting at noon where we bring in pizza and I bring in the, the program managers, the engineering leads from five of the seven teams I look after. And we're gonna sit down with all of those teams and we're gonna have them talk about what's your plan for the next three sprints. Okay. And we do that every sprint together. And what that does is it sort of creates a continual nine week look ahead as to where we're going. And that's a place where um, we're really doing cross team planning, cross team sharing. And we have a lot of what I call the aha moments okay. up here where you know, you got two teams at the table and one is sharing what they're thinking about two or three sprints from now. And the other team is sitting there and saying, ah, I didn't know you guys were gonna do that. We should talk. Or have you, have you connected with this other group? And that just gives us kind of really what I call a rolling planning and learning conversation that just happens continually. And we'll use that approach throughout the year. We'll do it all the way to the end of the year. And then we'll look back and celebrate a little bit about what we've sure. achieved. And then we'll just rinse and repeat and cast a new six month plan and an 18 month vision. And that's really a process that we use throughout the year. We kind of never really stray from it. Okay, great. So when you're planning that far out in advance though, a lot of people start to concern on, well, how much detail is in something you think you're gonna get to yeah. 18 months from now? Because I don't wanna spend a lot of time planning on that for it just to be destroyed yeah. or thrown away the next time we reevaluate sure. that. So I heard you say you do storyboards, but at what level of detail do you plan something that is 18 months in the future? Yeah, uh, storyboard is about as far as, as about what Fair we plan. Enough. So we draw some some concept pictures. Um, we we certainly have backed that with with research. So there's tons of customer research that we do. We will vet that with customers. You know, shop it with customers and say, hey, here's what we're thinking. Um, but it's more of a vision. And and yeah, a lot of people hear 18 month plan and they think we're doing like hours story point decomposition <laughs> you know waterfall gantt chart out to the end and i'm like no 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 exactly like, my plan looks a little different than that <laughs> um but but it is the thing that keeps us directionally aligned and as we're you know as we're moving through a six-month season and we're making progress we're continually continually sort of looking up and remembering, hey, where where did we say we were going and are we still in the right direction? on track? Because as you know, you can start on something and kind of never take your eyes off it. And before you know it, you're off here, Absolutely. off in the weeds and it, it's not helping a lot. So that high level planning is, um, you know, yeah, it's not Gantt charts, hours or anything like that. It's not even story points. Got you know, it. we do it with the team and it's, it's kind of gut feel type stuff. You know, it's where we sit down and say, hey, you know, do, do we think this fits? Um, and, and we have conversations about it. Um, and we're not, what we're not doing is at the end of that 18 months sort of looking back and saying, you know, you didn't do this and you right. said you were gonna do that. Because the reality is I expect my plan to change. Absolutely. I expect that the market's gonna change. Absolutely. I expect customers are gonna change. I expect competitors are gonna change. And I don't have a crystal ball that predicts where I'm gonna, where I need to be 18 months from now. 
have a lot of good data that points me in a direction, and then we go. Exactly, yeah. and, and that's so hard. It's so refreshing to hear, but it's so hard to, to explain that to someone who's been doing waterfall for 30 years, yeah. who's built this massive company doing it the old way, and then yeah. you come in with this new way, and, and I'm not going to tell you what we're going to have 18 months from now, certainly, and their brains are just, they just yeah. can't handle it. And it's so hard to have that conversation to explain to them that it's going to change. You know it's going to change. I mean, yeah. you can look at your own history and tell me that what yeah. you built wasn't what you wanted, but yet you won't let go of that way of development, yeah. which is just so frustrating sometimes. Totally agree. And we all know that, um, you know, I think it's a lot of it's just human nature. Like, it is uncomfortable to, to work change. different and to, yes. and to change. It is just hard. And, and there is a, you know, you sort of have to let go a little bit. But what I've found, and I think what we've all found as we've embraced this approach, is that the more we do let go and the more we leave room for those right conversations and, and continually plan and learn, we feel like we're building a better product. Our customers are telling us we're building a product. Absolutely. So there's evidence of it. And I can look back and I, I talk to customers all the time. I show them, you know, I make this kind of joke. You know, we used to have these plans that helped me sleep at night, right? That's all it did. It was like comfort that I could sleep at night. But like, did we ever ship on time? Like rarely. It, it wasn't like the plan was what made us successful, right? right? The plan was just an exercise we went through to make us feel good. Right. And now I feel good through sort of continual planning, right. you know, and whatnot. And, you know, getting back to the beginning of where you started, I, I can tell you that we do such, uh, we, are, we are much more effective planners than we have ever been. And it's because we're embracing agile thinking, not because we're um, you know, better at Gantt charts right. or, or story breakdown right. or task decomposition. It's, it, it has nothing to do with that Absolutely. level of planning. Yeah, yeah. and I, 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 like you said earlier, you said, I know what I can do a week from now. I have no idea what I can do 18 months. I mean, you want yeah. me to plan that out? Are yeah. you serious? Right? None yeah. of those numbers are going to yeah. be right. I used to give my guys a hard time because when I started becoming really aggressive with Agile, yeah. I, would, I would ask for estimates really, really quickly. And my teams were used to going off and prototyping and yeah. pretty much doing it first and then coming back and telling yeah. me, if you want me to do it again, it'll take me this long. I'm like, no, you're going to be wrong regardless yeah. of how long I'd give you the time to estimate. So be yeah. wrong tomorrow so we can start working on it, right? Yeah. So, but the funny thing is, is that when they started breaking it down, like getting in the exercise of literally tell me, don't give me a, a two-week estimate. Yeah. Tell me what you're going to get done every day. Yeah. And then they realized it's a three-week estimate when they really thought about it. And yeah. it didn't take them very long. It was amazing on just small changes in their behavior yielded amazing results in what we were doing, but we were still doing it very quick. Inspect and adapt. You haven't said those words, but you've been saying that over yeah. and over again, right? You just inspect yeah. where you are and you adapt to make sure that you're going in the right yeah, direction. Yeah, I think the, the words I use that, that parallel that, and it's just a different language, is I say plan and learn. Exactly. And sort of we plan, execute, learn, plan, execute, learn. And it's amazing for us, you know, this meeting I talk about that we're having tomorrow, there's very little prep for the teams that goes into this meeting because essentially assembling a, a look ahead that is nine weeks from now on what they're going to do. And I'm not asking for a week-by-week week breakdown. Sure. I'm saying take the next three sprints and slot the features in there. And just tell me. And then we're going to come back and, and do it again in three more weeks and just keep slotting it in. And they're super comfortable with that level of planning. Right. Now, if I said slot in the next six sprints, you know, now we're talking 18 weeks. Yeah. Now it becomes a bit of a head-scratcher. And, and people are very transparent. And they say, you know, that's harder for me to do and I don't feel comfortable. And the reality is that's okay. You know, like I, I'm not asking for that. Sure. I, I, want, I want us to get aligned on a goal for the next six months. Let's set our sights on it. Let's have a conversation and then we'll go attack it three weeks at a time. And we'll use those continual conversations to inspect, adapt, plan, learn. Exactly. Um, yeah, and do that part of the process. Right, because a lot of people, it's, it's funny because 
being a DevOps PM, I speak to a lot of customers on DevOps as it's as the title of the yeah. discussion always has, right? Yeah. It always boils down to an agile discussion. Yeah. Over and over again, I'm talking about standups and quality yeah. and and how long your sprint should be, and and it, it just is like, yeah, you got to be good at this, guys. Yeah. If you're not good at producing value, then what are we deploying? What are we trying to deploy so quickly, right? Yeah. And, and a lot of people seem to think DevOps starts at continuous integration and ends at it in in production. I don't agree. Yeah. I think DevOps starts at the planning and doesn't end until you're monitoring that idea in production. Yeah. That to me is what we're trying to do, which is why I wanted to talk to you as well. Is that I don't want people thinking DevOps is just automation and it starts when you check in code. No, it started yeah. long before we checked in code, yeah. and it extends well beyond us deploying that code because we have to monitor and learn from the actual usage. Because you were talking about where we get data from. I know you and I do more EBCs than we should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's one way, and the re reason that we do that is because it gives us invaluable conversations with customers. Yeah. And let them let them tell us what they need. Uh, I know you are very active on Twitter as well. Yeah. I literally tell people, find me on Twitter, ask me what you need to ask yeah. me, and I've pulled you in on conversation. Yeah. So, and also, user voice is another place that I come every once in a while. So, to try to get that that feedback from our users to make sure that what we're producing is actually going to fix their problems. But it's just amazing to me how people don't include Agile in the discussion of DevOps a lot of times. Yeah. And I think that's a, I think that's a really big problem. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll, I, I was thinking about this leading up to this conversation about sort of the, the relationship between Agile and DevOps, and I think, I think it's super well articulated what you just said. I tend to think that, you know, Agile was sort of born in a box software world where, um, where you know we delivered less frequently, and, and you know the world is is turning and, and has shifted very rapidly to a, a service first world where, right. where we're really deploying and and delivering continually, you know, and much more often. And I think that's where these two sort of meet is that we we learned how to do agile in sort of a different way, and then the DevOps extension is that now as we're taking what we're doing using an agile approach and delivering it and then completing the circle that is the the sort of devops loop and right. i completely agree like agile and devops are sort of half of one circle that really goes together and, and it's it's kind of silly to leave out either either half of it you know exactly. you, you, you sort of can't right you know? and I, it was funny because i wrote this probably the most popular thing i've ever written was a blog post on why i believe devops is the hottest topic on the planet right now why weren't we talking about this 10 years ago? Why didn't it have a cool name 10 years ago? Because we sucked at writing software 10 years ago, yeah. right? Because we didn't have Agile, we didn't have Kanban, we didn't have test-driven development. We were producing garbage very, very slowly. And when we went to deploy it, everything lights went out. Like yeah. it was, everyone had to be in and people had pagers on. It took us days to deploy it and it was, like, it was horrible. So deploying it was the least of our worries back then, right? We had to figure out how do we produce software really well? And that's where Agile and all yeah. these Scrum has come in and now teams are really able to produce it. But this distrust was built between the devs and the engineering, I mean, in the operations guys, because yeah. I, I remember being able to go onto a production server and copy my files there. Yeah. Right? I remember that time. And then I would break the server, the guy would get mad at me, and then all of a sudden he wouldn't let me touch the server anymore. And then I had to write a document and give him my binaries. Yeah. And then that still didn't work because my document wasn't very good. And then this chasm just grew yeah. between us. But then when we got agile, and we started putting in unit testing and being really serious yeah. about test-driven development, and the quality went up. Now, all of a sudden, this gap is still there, though. Yeah. So I'm producing value, but it's just piling up over here, and we can't get it into the hands of our users. Yeah, well, I think like the you know TDD unit <laughs> testing, all that, that helped us learn to you know, change the software with higher confidence because sure. we could rely sure. on, on, on the unit test to, to save us and, and you know, highlight when things were broken. Okay, good, we learned how to do that. But I think... This next stage has been turned, like what you said, it's, 
it's taking the deployment aspect of it and, and really treating deployment as a part of our software. It's not something that you hand off, you know, chuck it over the wall to, with a Word doc and say, <laughs> hey, good luck doing that, you know. <laughs> but now we're saying that, like, you know, configuration is code and, you know, it's continuous. And really, I talk to people about you got to treat your deployment pipeline, whatever that looks like, as, as a feature of your product. It's a part of it. Because if you can't move through that quickly, if you don't treat that as software that's continually evolving, continually improving, continually getting better, continually being automated in some new way, shape, or form, you're really not uh, you know, sort of moving the needle on how quickly you can get the value you're producing here to customers over here. And you know, I might, might take a slightly different spin on sure. 10 years ago, because you said we sucked at building software. <laughs> sure, okay. Uh, we can do it better now. But I, you know, I sometimes laugh at buying software. Like, let's talk about how did we buy software 15 years ago? You know, like I would get in my car. Go to Egghead Software. Yeah, or I would something. drive to a store. <laughs> I would pick up a literally a box, and I remember looking at the side of it. You know, and then I would come home and I would install it. I might even read the manual. <laughs> you know, today I could say, you know, right now, Donovan, like, you know, in the next 90 seconds, buy a piece of software or the world ends. And like, you wouldn't even like break a sweat. You'd be like, done. You know, and you could have it delivered to your house. Look how cool this is. Yeah, yeah, installing, running. You know, like, you know, a drone drops it up. Exactly. But it's just. Everything's changed, and it's um, it's forced us to rethink how we do that. Like I think it used to be build software and then deliver software. Now it's building software and delivering software go together. They're they're all a part of the same. And then what DevOps is teaching us is that building software, delivering software, supporting software, improving software, it's all the same thing, yeah, and it all goes together. Yeah, it's so. a never-ending journey. It's like yeah. it's the one journey you start knowing you're never going to end, and you're excited about it because you're just going to get better and better yeah. and better. You know, there's no finish line in this race, and yeah. it, it can it can feel a little exhausting. You know, when I walked in and you said, uh, "How you doing, Aaron?" and I was like, "You know, I used to I used to just say busy. You know, that was like <laughs> the answer to everything." And uh, and we're always busy, but right. it's a good busy, yeah. and it's fun, and and it can feel a little bit like a treadmill because, you know. Oh, you know, the end of Sprint 102, what's right around the corner? Oh, Sprint 103, and here we go. Yeah. But uh, it is super fun to see our software improving and continually improving and being so connected to customers and able to address their feedback. I mean, right. as a product owner, I, I tell people that I feel like half of my job is apologizing for things I'm not doing, you know. And I've, had, I've said that quite a few times. And it's because we have to prioritize. But, yeah. but I, I also feel like, man, the amount of apologizing I do now it's just drastically less because I've actually got opportunities and channels and ways to improve the software that I didn't 10 years ago. Gotcha. And, uh, and that's super refreshing. And, and it's, it's, better, it's better in the, the environment where you're building software, and, and ultimately it's better for customers as right. well. So. And I also like the fact that <coughs> the way that our tools integrate really highlights how important planning is too because yeah. I can track that work item from the commits to it, the build yeah. it was in, to the release it was deployed to. to the, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how we can actually tie that all together so that I can answer really tough questions on what is our throughput? What is our velocity? Yeah. So, I mean, how long, what's the lead time of an idea actually yeah. being pushed into production now? We have that. And it takes the planning being integrated into everything else that we do. And I tell people this all the time. If you're not using VSTS for your DevOps pipeline, you're using more than one vendor. Yeah. I say that with 100% confidence, right? Yeah. You're using more than one vendor because we're the only one who has all of it. And that's important because it all just stitches together so that yeah. the planning flows all the way into the end of it. So yeah, and I think a lot of people, they don't realize the pieces they're not using. And then when they go start using them, they're sort of like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize there's all this value there. And yeah, you know, uh, sometimes we talk about like the traceability through it. And for some reason, traceability kind of sounds like a, it sounds like 
I don't know, like tax form. It just sounds like old school <laughs> and like, you know, uh, like traceability. I don't know, like we need a sexier term. But, but there is something super refreshing about being able to see that something started as an idea and then see it in a release log all the way at the other end yeah. and, and understand its journey and, and see it connected and then see it working in production. You know, and then what, what we love doing is then seeing the feedback come through user voice yeah. and connecting that feedback back to new items that show up on the backlog. Right. And uh, when you see that happening in real life and you see it through the tools, it, it's fun and yeah, it's super it's, refreshing. It's, it's amazing. I've been using TFS since it started and I'm still a hardcore developer. I still sling code yeah. as much as ever. And it's just, the only way I can describe the change in my life was I became hyper productive because everything I needed was just right there yeah. all the time, right in front of me. And, and like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. So what we're going to do right now is we're going we're gonna to switch a little bit. There was okay. one question uh, from Twitter on how will agile planning, and he said sprints, need to change to adopt today's environment of continuous deployment? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I, I think it kind of leads back to some of the things I was talking about earlier about how we give teams flexibility within sprints. Because I, I still think the, the concept of a sprint um, not necessarily as as the point at which you deliver, but as a sort of like a, a check-in rhythm, still will have a lot of value in a continuous deployment, continuous integration world. I think the difference that we're going to see, and I think we're already seeing it, is that we see a lot of people combining the principles from Kanban and uh, and flow and managing work in process with the the execution rhythm of sprints. And, and again, we do that very much today where we have teams that aren't doing traditional sprint planning on day one of the sprint. They never stop moving work through their pipeline. It's just that they're using the three-week boundary as a time to, to surface uh, value that they delivered here and value that they think they're going to deliver here. You know, I always tell people it's not acceptable in Agile to, you know, when somebody says, what are you doing next? To say, well, I don't know, I'm Agile. Like, Come on, that's, yeah, that's BS. Ridiculous. It's yeah, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You, know, yeah. you know what's coming next. You can look in the left column of your Kanban board and understand. If yeah. it's prior, you know what's coming up sure. next. And if you understand your throughput and, you, and you're measuring that and you can track it and watch it, then you can make a pretty good um, uh, reasonable estimate about what from here is going to make it through. So I think we will enter a world where, where Scrum has taught us the, you know, and sprints have taught us sort of the, what I call like the science of how to do agile, how to run standups, you know, how to do planning poker, how to think in, in user story terms instead of traditional requirements. Um, and I think we're moving to a model where the boundaries, the sprint boundary can still be a very, very healthy thing for teams and especially for lots of teams working together. But the mechanics of what goes on within that sprint, whether it's three weeks or four weeks or two weeks, I don't care, look a little bit more like a flow-based pull model instead of a sprint plan, burn down, execute gotcha. model, you know? So, so are you also, so what you're saying, because I think I, I pushed back on this question because I thought I knew what he wanted and we had a little bit of a conversation on Twitter okay. and I had misinterpreted, but I think you nailed it, right? Because in your answer, you kind of addressed so, a couple I, of things. I think you said I'm right and you were wrong. Is that yeah. what you said? Okay, so. <laughs> a little bit. Because you mentioned. But, For the record. Yeah, I just yeah, want yeah, to right, double right, click yeah, on that so yeah. to make sure you're right. Is that three weeks is when the sprint is over, but that does not mean you have to wait till three weeks to deliver. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, okay, so great. That's what his point was. He's like, Donovan, with us wanting to deliver as often as possible, I want to deliver multiple times a sprint. Yeah, so what I would say is exactly right. Okay. Um, three weeks is, is still a boundary. And so let's say you have lots of teams, okay? Three weeks is a boundary where every team should surface what they did deliver 
and what they're planning to deliver. Okay. And that's what essentially we do. Now, we don't give teams the freedom to deliver mid-sprint. We deliver hot fixes. We can deliver mid-sprint, but we found that we want a three-week you know, rhythm to that, and, and there's reasons for that. But yeah, I think you can move to a world where a team can be working in a, a sprint model, whether it's three weeks, two weeks, or four weeks, and delivering when things are done. I mean, it gets to the end of, the, it gets to the end of your board, it's ready. You've got an automated delivery pipeline, go. Like, why not? That's gotcha. fine. And then at the end of that boundary, you can circle back and share everything that you've delivered. Because, you know, part of what we found in scaling Agile is that you have to have, you have to have sort of rigor and alignment on how you're going to surface work that's been done and going to be done. And if that's happening in a continuous model, you know, where every day it's like, you know, ah, I did this, I'm doing that, right. we're coming next. We just can't absorb it, sure. you know, and, and it's too much. Awesome. It, it's noise. And so I think that that three-week boundary, or in our case, three weeks, but whatever your sure, sprint boundary sure, is, sure. can give you a, um, a healthy place to surface and check in. And that's kind of a model that where we fall. A lot of people will say, well, how do you do things like sprint demos? And, you know, teams do their own sprint demos, but we actually have a, a sprint mail that we send. Right. And it's uh, what the sprint mail is, is tell me what you did in the last sprint. Record a quick two to three-minute video you know, uh, proving it, proving it, and, <laughs> and not not telling me everything, all the activity you did, but how did you change the product? Sure. What's the customer value that came? Sure. You know, give me a demo of that, and then just give me insight into what you're planning for the next three weeks. Whether you plan that with a, you know, uh, a sprint planning meeting on day one of the sprint, or you plan it by looking at your Kanban board, understanding your velocity, and saying this is what we think we'll get. Just project forward. I, yeah. I don't care. I mean, that's where I, I feel like teams should have the autonomy to work in, in different styles there. Yeah, so. I, I tell the sprint mail story quite often to our customers, and they light up because a lot of them struggle with that when their teams are not co-located. Yeah. When your entire team is together and it's seven to nine guys, it's a piece of cake. We have 35 teams working together, and they're all over the globe. Yeah, I can't be in all those stand-ups. I can't be in all those sprint reviews, even if no. I wanted to, no. right? So it's it was a really interesting way to be able to solve that problem, and yet you can see and monitor all the traffic that you need to. Yeah, uh, ignore the emails that you don't care about, yeah. but watch those that you do. So it's yeah, really powerful you know, kind of opt in to what matters to you. And I think the the one thing we've learned too on the on the team thing is just like we have teams around the world, but but we have teams around the world. We don't have you know. Half a team here, half a team there. Team. Like I always kind of have this saying where it's it's hard to win the game if you're all playing in separate stadiums. Like uh, you know, and so I think you have to locate teams together, and and we do that. We have teams here in Redmond, we have teams in Raleigh, North Carolina, we have teams in the UK, we have teams in Hyderabad. Yeah. they're fully staffed teams. Absolutely. You know, and and that's made up of an engineering lead, engineers, and a program manager who operates as much as a product owner. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. I, I tell the same story as well. Is that our teams are not all co-located, but your team is co-located. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little yeah. distinction there, but it's really, really important. Yep. So what new things can you share with us that might be coming that we're going to be doing to change the way that DevOps is going to, I mean, the DevOps is going to be impacted by, by agile planning, things like that? I think one of the things I'm most excited about that, that you'll hear us talk more about as we get through the summer, but we have a set of um, new views coming to the product that, that we sort of dub as uh, scaled agile. Um, and, and they're not about a specific methodology, whether it's, you know, SAFE, the Scaled Agile Framework, sure. or, or other methodologies. But they're, they're places where we're bringing um, sort of cross-team views that combine uh, what teams are planning to do um, out across the sprints going forward. So remember I talked about these, uh, like th these three sprint planning meetings yeah. like, like that we do today. Well, 
you know, I'm sort of embarrassed to say that when we sit down and do that, we don't bring up our Kanban board. We bring up a OneNote file where we've entered right. that data in because we're, we're assembling work from many teams across a schedule. Well, we've got all that data inside team services and we're going to go bring that to life so that you can facilitate those type of conversations where schedule shows up and team backlogs show up together. And, you know, it's, it's early right now, but we've got a lot planned there and you're going to see us make a pretty big investment in that space coming forward. So awesome. I think that's a great, a great spot where sort of scaling agile and that DevOps mindset of, you know, inspect, adapt, plan and learn will, will come to life. Uh, so. I agree because I, I'm so glad we got to have a chance to have this conversation because I, I tell everybody, you got to be good at Agile to be good at DevOps. That's my personal opinion. Yeah. I think you got to be good at, at one before you're going to be good at the other one. Yeah. And like you said, I like the way you said there's like two halves to the same, like the yin and the yang, right? Yeah. Once that's you're right. really good at one, then the other one's just going to push you across the finish line. That's right. I think it's really hard to be good at DevOps when you're not good at Agile, right? Yeah. I mean, you have this, what well, are you doing, right? Well, and I think it's really hard to be good at Agile if you're not good at DevOps. I, you know, one of my good buddies, and, and you know Peter well, but Peter mm. Provost yeah, said yeah. to me years ago, you know, he said, you, you can't cheat shipping. And what he meant by that is that, you know, you can run three-week sprints all you want, but until you're delivering at the end of every one of those sprints, there's just a ton of things that you'll hide and you won't do. And, and once you start delivering, you realize all the things you were sort of cheating yourself on. <laughs> and, and a lot of those things had to do with, you know, technical debt around deployment, around configuration. And so I really believe you can, you know, you can be great at Scrum, but until you can take what you've got here and deliver it at the end of every one of those iterations, um, and then really accept the feedback and bring yeah. it back in your backlog, which is DevOps. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're not doing it well. Yeah, that's, so. that's, I said the same thing. But you actually, you just because you just said something made me think of something else I wanted to talk to you about was when we're doing planning, um, I usually break down things until they fit inside of our sprint. Like yeah. I want you to break it down until it, you can complete whatever that is. But yeah. a lot of times, depending on your sprint length, that's very, very difficult to do. Yeah. So when I have something that's going to take three or four sprints to actually complete, yeah. um, I know what I think the answer is, but how are you handling that? What suggestions do you have for customers of ours? Because a lot of them are like, well, I'm going to create this long living branch, which I think is a bad idea yeah. because they're going to wait four sprints from now before they merge it back in when it's done. And all of a sudden yeah. you have this price. I don't care how quickly or how easily Git lets you make branches, there's still a price to pay when you yeah. merge that guy back in, right? The yeah. longer he stays apart, the more expensive the cost is for having that branch. Now, I don't believe that we do a lot of that in Microsoft. Yeah. So what are some things that, first of all, do you try to do that, break things down until they fit? And then when you have those outliers, how do you address that concern? Yeah, I think uh, there, there's two aspects to that. I think, first of all, like, do things fit? Well, we tend to think of, we have sort of four levels in our sort of work item hierarchy where okay. we manage work. Um, we have sort of scenarios at the high level, which are those big things, yep. okay? Uh, we have features, which is a feature is something that we deliver to a customer. Yep. And then we have stories and tasks below that. We really run our business through features. So when I'm having that three sprint conversation, I'm not talking to teams about stories and tasks. I'm talking to them about, talk to me about a feature. Okay. And I expect that a feature is, is roughly one to three sprints. Okay. okay, so that's kind of a ballpark. And I don't want to same size them because features are different sizes. You know, there, sure. are, there are small features, there are big features. Sure. But if you tell me a feature is eight sprints, it's kind of like, hmm, like that's a little too long because you can't really predict eight sprints from now, I don't, I don't really believe. Um, so we run our business through those, those things that fit into kind of a one to three sprint um, time, uh, you know, kind of sizing model. Sure. Now below that, our guidance to teams is that stories and tasks, a story should fit in a sprint. You know, you don't want stories that run for two to three sprints and stories 
accrue to features. So okay. that's the way we think about it. Okay. Um, now, as far as though, like what you talked about, so even if you've got a feature though, and it's going to take three sprints, does that mean you branch and sit over here by yourself for nine weeks? Absolutely not. Exactly. And uh, what we've learned is we've adopted a model that we call feature flags, exactly. where uh, kind of the first thing you do when you're changing the code base is you really instrument a switch into the code base, and it's a new path for the new code that you're writing. So really, whether it's a bug fix or a feature, you're going to sort of protect yourself by building this switch where you can put all the new code over here, and the traditional path is still going to go right through this way. That switch is controlled uh, by a flag in a database somewhere, and, and we can turn that on or off. And then what that allows you to do is it literally allows you to check in daily everything that you're doing. It's just that you've checked in with the switch turned off. Right. What that allows me to do is I can suck down those bits and turn that flag on in environments that matter, whether that's a development environment, a test environment, an environment I'm sharing with another team. And I can exercise the new bits, but I can keep the core path through the, um, through the code base protected. And then when the feature's done, then we can turn it on. And we have a, a way to turn that on for like stages of customers. So right. we can roll it out to dog food environments before we roll it out broadly. MVPs versus other yeah. people as well. So that's a way that we've um, essentially created a way where the code that I'm writing for a, a feature that's going to take nine weeks is actually being deployed to the service at the end of the first sprint. It's up there. It's, it's running on Azure. Exactly. It's, it's like in production. <laughs> it's just. Nobody get nobody can get to it Absolutely. because it's you know all the all the flows are behind that switch, and what I also love about that is that then evaluating when a feature is done becomes a very very easy decision because when it's done we just flip the switch on, I don't have to move bits or merge things or exactly. or if I find late in the game oh my gosh like we found some big problem and it's not ready I don't have to like back code out or you know do some sort of crazy you know like we got to reverse engineer a bunch sure. of stuff and it's it's already in a branch and now I've got to pull it out, we just flip the switch off. Gotcha. And, um, and that becomes a very, very easy decision. So those are kind of two approaches about how we manage you know, the sizing of features across sprints and then the, um, the managing of branches with the code that's um, accruing to those features. So I want to ask a couple, a few more questions and we're sure. going to end it up is, you don't get something for nothing. Sure. You just made feature flags sound like they were a panacea. There has to be a cost, a, a cost. I mean, something you a price that you pay for that yeah. for that feature. Because immediately, what I think of, okay, my cyclomatic complexity of every method that has a switch in it just went up. Yeah. Every single one of them, right? And yeah. now, when I'm reading the code, is it obfuscating on which path is it actually taking or not? Yeah. How many nested flags do I have now because one yeah. feature begets another feature, right? Yeah. And then when is it safe for me to remove that feature flag so that I don't need yeah. the old path of code because there might be a point, oh my God, I want to turn that back off. Oh, yeah. I can't turn it back off because the flag's not there anymore. Yeah. So talk to me about the trade-off of using a, sure. a, a technique like So I think flag. it sounds like unicorns and rainbows. It's not, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's hard work and rigor. Uh, I think we had to do this for about a year before we got good at it. Okay. And one of the first lessons we learned is kind of what you alluded to the, at the end. You got to go clean this stuff up yep. because once you flip a switch on, now you've got a new code path. What do you do with the old code path? And, and what do you do with the switch? And what we found is, you know, kind of after doing this for a while, it was like, uh-oh, now we've got a code base littered with all these switches. And to be honest, it's kind of embarrassing, but we hadn't done a great job sort of documenting for ourselves what the <laughs> switches did. So the code base was almost becoming a little bit of a mess. So what we learned is, is we introduced some rigor that, A, we've got um, to have the rigor to build things behind switches. And we had to have a, 
a consistent approach to doing that. So how do you go do a feature flag? If everybody's doing it different, it's going to be chaotic. Yeah, nice so there's got to be a, a method to do it. And that's got to be easy for engineers to opt into. Uh, we have to clean them up at the end. And what we will do is you'll often see teams talk about in their sprint mails, you know, a feature has been rolled out, it's been turned on publicly, and a sprint later they're going to come back and remove the feature flag. So won't, we don't remove it until we've sort of like kind of put it into production and let it bake a little bit, you know, <laughs> and just to make sure, and then we'll go back and remove it. But awesome. I can tell you um, we had some situations recently where some teams had some work done and they hadn't put it behind feature flags. And then we found some late-breaking bugs, and it was like, well, what do we do? And we had to have all these terrible conversations about, yeah. okay, do we stop the team and go, like, cram a bunch of new things in here and fix that? And what I wanted to say was, well, just leave it turned off. But they hadn't followed the approach that we wanted. And, uh, you know, you learn that lesson a sure. few times, and, and, uh, and you don't do it again. So sure. there's certainly hard work here. There's certainly coordination involved, but in the end, I think it, it pays off, and it makes our branch mechanics a lot easier to manage. Awesome, awesome. Well, that was fantastic. I really do appreciate you coming cool. and having a chat on that. I think, I mean, I've actually learned a couple of things, too, so it's, it's been fantastic. Cool. Thanks so much for coming. All right, over. thanks, Donovan. All yep. right, thanks, guys. All right. See you. See you.